0: What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash writer's voice. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Alejandro Zambra read his story, Skyscrapers, which was translated from the Spanish by Megan McDowell and appeared in the August 22, 2022 issue of the magazine. Zambra is a Chilean poet and fiction writer whose books translated into English include Multiple Choice, Chilean Poet, and Bonsai, his first novel, which was published in a new translation this month. Now here's Alejandro Zambra.
1: Skyscrapers I didn't go to New York because I didn't want to cut my hair, and my father didn't read my letter to my father. I read it next time I feel like crying, he told me, except I never feel like crying. I didn't know how to respond. I never knew how to respond. That was why I wrote. That's why I write. I write the replies I don't think of at the time, or drafts of those replies, really. The first time I tried to write this story, for example, I erased you. I thought it would be possible to conceal your absence, as if you simply hadn't shown up for that day's performance, and we, the other actors, had to improvise at the last minute. Only now do I realize that this story started with you, because, although I might prefer to somehow avoid acknowledging it, this is. Above all, and in every sense, a love story. Just a week earlier, everything had been in order. It would be wrong to say that everything was fine, because things were never truly fine back then. But sometimes the averageness worked, and there were even happy days. My father and I in the car, windows rolled down, listening to the news. Maybe we looked like friends or brothers on our way to work each pleased to have the other there to brighten the ride with small talk. You should learn how to drive, my father told me that morning, while we were stopped at the light. I've been hearing the same thing since I was 14 years old, or maybe even longer, since I was 12. Now, at 20, I was beginning to think that, yes, it would make sense for me to learn how to drive, if only to cultivate the pleasant Stupid fantasy of a high speed escape down the highway after stealing everything my parents owned, starting with the car. But I also liked not knowing how to drive, the idea of never learning. I could learn, yeah, I said. You want me to teach you? He asked eagerly. Tomorrow or Sunday? Tomorrow, great. My dad's office was downtown, but he took a detour of several blocks to drop me off near the United States consulate, where I had a visa appointment. I was prepared for endless bureaucracy, but I was done in an hour and even had time to make it to Tuesday's class. I was only a little late, which wasn't a problem, because the professor hated formalities. We went in and out of the classroom with no need for excuses as if the session were being held in the street and we were merely the momentary audience of a preacher or a street vendor. I ducked into the back row, as always, and took out my César Vallejo photocopies and the gigantic notebook where I would jot down random phrases. I didn't bother trying to take real notes. Not even the most diligent students were able to capture the sometimes brilliant but always disconcerting soliloquies of Guillermo Schuster. I recall him in mid hareng a gitan in his right hand, and in his left a coffee cup, which wasn't a cup, strictly speaking, but the lid of his thermos. Each sip marked a step in the professor's crescendo his performance began with general observations, hesitant but sound, and then veered off into loquacious digressions that dispersed in all directions. There was a rumour that the thermos Chester drank from so methodically during his classes contained coffee spiked with whiskey or pisco, or even an exclusive Polish vodka, straight, since it would have been sinful, of course, to mix it with coffee. Could you please put out your cigarette, Professor? An unknown student said that morning. You. Why? Chester asked, genuinely taken aback, as if he'd just heard something crazy. I'm pregnant, you replied. It's become difficult to explain how smoking in classrooms was not only permitted back then, but considered a completely normal, almost reasonable thing to do. Sometimes, even in the middle of winter, with the windows closed, there could be five or more cigarettes lit at the same time. If you saw it in a movie, it would seem like an exaggeration, a cheap gimmick, a parody. I thought Schuster would react with infinite disdain and would turn, as always, to sarcasm but instead he gave you a curious smile that lasted two or three seconds before he crushed out his cigarette on the floor. The TA, who observed the class with the demeanor of a fan, and who often synchronized his cigarettes with choosters, as if the two of them belonged to the same team of elite smokers, also had to put his out, and I had to fight my own desire to light up. After class, the professor and his assistant headed quickly out to the parking lot, and I walked with them so that I could tell them about my upcoming trip to New York. No problem about attendance. Take it easy. Schuster wrapped his chin as though caressing a thick, imaginary beard. But that city just doesn't convince me. I don't like New York. Why not? It's overrated, he said, in his customary tone of a skeptical intellectual. One of my kids lived there for three years, in Brooklyn. Terrible city, New York, the assistant said. Just awful. One of my kids, I thought, impressed that Schuster had more than one child. I could easily imagine him as someone's father, Almost all the adults I knew had at least one child, but the thought that Schuster had produced, that was the verb I used, two or more human beings seemed to me, in that moment, strange or perhaps alarming. I said goodbye to them and was about to light an overdue cigarette when I saw you approaching. Do you have another smoke? you asked. I thought you were pregnant. Some pregnant people smoke, you told me. No, the truth is that I just lost my baby. Just now, in the bathroom. It was horrible. You smiled at me and lit the cigarette I handed you. So why'd you tell him to put it out? To fuck with him. He was just talking so much, you said. I've never been pregnant, you added, as if it were necessary to clarify. Did you like the class? Yeah, I liked the poems we analyzed. Vallejo is awesome. I didn't understand the professor at all, but I liked it. Are all his classes like that? Yeah, just pretty crazy. I had to get to my Intro to Research Methodology class, but instead I decided to keep working aimlessly with you. You told me you were thinking about majoring in literature, and you'd gone to Tuster's class out of curiosity. I never wanted to study anything, you said, and I still don't know if I really want to. You were 20 years old, like me, but I thought you sounded more grown up. Or, rather, I felt that you were some sort of ancient and noble presence. That was when I really looked at you for the first time. And I noticed your almost disproportionately large eyes. Your hair was longish, but still shorter than mine. Mine reached my shoulders. You also reached my shoulders, but you struck me as one of those people who seem tall even though they aren't. We walked together toward Plaza Nueva. I tried to combat the silence because I still hadn't discovered that it was possible even necessary, to share silences. I told you about my trip to New York, and though I was trying to come off as casual and worldly, I'm sure I sounded pretty arrogant. I should have practiced first in front of the mirror. You had already been to New York and much of Europe, and you'd lost count of how many times you'd been to Buenos Aires, your favorite city in the whole world. But you didn't tell me all that then. You just mentioned that you'd been to New York. What was your favorite thing about New York? Some paintings by Paul Klee at the Met. Those were the best. It wasn't just that I liked them. They inspired happiness in me. You spoke in short sentences with long pauses between each word. You spoke like the protagonist of a slow and beautiful movie. I spoke like a comedy actor who got his first series role and was trying to prove his range to the world, but just came off as sad because his effort was so obvious. We went into the Matt Toy bookstore. I stopped by there every day and usually stayed for a long time, sometimes all afternoon, talking with one of the three owners, especially Miguel, I considered Miguel practically my best friend, but I also liked talking to Tino or Denise. They had all studied literature at the same university as me, and they weren't even 30 yet, but they'd managed to open that tiny, excellent bookstore, which, despite its excellence, or perhaps because of it, was headed straight off a cliff. They didn't sell bad books, or at least they tried not to. They arranged the shop window and the counter displays according to a shared idea of literature that made them proud. If someone asked for a book by an author they considered mediocre or commercial, which to them was exactly the same thing, Tino or Denise would go down to the storeroom to get it and would sell it gradually. But not Miguel. In those situations, Miguel would reply, opening his green eyes exaggeratedly wide and almost unable to hide the satisfaction he felt at saying it, we don't sell that kind of book here. Together, you and I looked at the Mad Toys displays and shelves, and for 30 or 40 minutes life consisted of nothing more than enthusiastically recommending books to each other of feeling happy when our tastes coincided and of constructing the tacit fiction that in the future we would read all those books together. I live really close by, you told me suddenly. I'd like to invite you over to watch a movie, but I have to go now. I need to walk my dog. You paid for the book by Olga Orozco, you have been paging through, and then you hurried off. For a brief moment, I surrendered to the fatalistic thought that I would never see you again. She comes in here a lot, Miguel told me then, like around noon or even earlier, at eleven or so. She spends a long time looking at books. Sometimes she buys two or three. Other times she writes something down in a little red notebook and lives without buying anything. What does she buy? Always poetry? Poetry and essays and philosophy, but novels too, sometimes. Do you like her? Are you into her? I got nervous. I felt as though the question, in addition to being direct and sardonic, held a certain cruelty. She's different. Different from who? I don't know everyone, I guess. My friend smiled and I felt exposed, defenseless. I wanted to leave the bookstore, but Miguel went out to buy a couple of coffees from Las Lanzas. I loved those rare moments when I was left in charge of the store, and, in fact, the plan was for me to eventually work there, if sales ever picked up. We drank our coffees and I tried to help Miguel, who was struggling with a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. Then I sat in a corner to look through a few poetry anthologies. None of them had any poems by Olga Orozco. Toward the end of the afternoon, the TV actor Álvaro Rudolfi strode in with all the confidence that came from his immense popularity. He flashed Miguel a TV-worthy smile before saying, old swagger, Hey, buddy, recommend a book for me. I can't. I don't know you, Miguel replied dryly and immediately. How can I recommend a book for you if I don't even know you? Rudolfi left, flustered and even humiliated, and we closed up the store, rolling with laughter. Let's go eat at Dante, Miguel said. How can I go eat with you when I don't even know you? I replied. We ate some chacarero sandwiches and drank a few beers, prolonging the joy of that new phrase that worked for anything, resolved everything. How can I split some fries with you when I don't even know you? How can I pass the master when I don't even know you? How can I let you pay the bill if I don't even know you? It wasn't that we didn't like Rudolfi. That wasn't it at all. In fact, we thought he was quite a good actor. Still, the memory of his shocked face functioned as an odd kind of triumph. Miguel went home and I sat for almost an hour on a bench in Plaza Ñuñoa in case you turned up. Walking your dog. It was hard for me to accept that it was time to go. I got on the bus at midnight and dozed the whole ride, my head bouncing against the window. The next day, I woke up to the infernal noise of the juicer. This was, unfortunately, a regular trick of my father's. He hated for the rest of the family to still be asleep after he'd finished reading the sports section the only part of the paper that interested him. But he did have the courtesy to squeeze four extra oranges and leave a glass amid the piles of books on my bedside table. You can't be reading 20 or 30 books all at the same time, he told me. I was going to reply that I could very easily be reading 20 or 30 books all at the same time and that some of those books like the poetry ones, were never truly finished, but instead I pretended I was still asleep. You have to cut your hair, he told me then. Before New York, people will discriminate against you if you go there with long hair. He left the room, and for a few seconds I entertained the hope that he wouldn't come back I sat up to chug the orange juice, and looked at the ceiling with the empty glass held to my lips. My father had come back into my room. I could feel his expectant gaze, but I didn't meet it. Are you going to cut your hair? Yes or no? No. If you don't cut your hair, you are not going to New York. Then I'm not going to New York. I don't care about New York. I'm not cutting my hair. It was pretty much true that I didn't care about New York. What did I know about New York back then? Whatever I gleaned from watching Seinfeld or Taxi Driver? Whatever I more or less understood from Frank Sinatra's Hagnet song? Any other destination would have seemed just as uninspiring to me because, although I'd backpacked around a good bit of Chile by bus and train, I had never set foot on an airplane. The trip was a gift, and a completely unexpected one, because my father and I had been arguing over anything, over everything, for years. Nothing unusual. Ours was the classic version of father-son conflict, and I knew it, but the knowledge didn't console me. I refused to resign myself, because my father always shouted louder than I did, and never apologized afterwards. But after an especially turbulent recent fight, he had found a way to ask forgiveness. He had cashed in miles for a ticket in my name, trusting, and rightfully so, in the element of surprise, because he had chosen the date and the destination, which sounded so abstract and so spectacular. You are not going to New York, then. You blew it, my father said, incredulous. You'll be begging me on your knees. You are going to regret this. I won't regret it. As I put my brand-new decision into words, I felt the vertigo and the authority that come from uttering, crucial, definitive phrases. And then I made another decision. I was going to move out of the house for good. Okay, the ticket's cancelled, my dad told me a couple of hours later. He just got up the phone with the airline. Great, I said. So what time should we start the driving lesson? No time, ever. But we agreed. But we are fighting. You know very well that those two things have nothing to do with each other. Yes, they do. I spent the weekend locked in my room reading the 20 or 30 books on my nightstand. Monday and Tuesday, I looked for a new place to live. I had some savings from an assistantship and a summer job, but everything I looked at was outside my price range. I started to despair because my only plan B was to stay at home and suppress my rage. But finally, almost miraculously, I found a cheap room in an apartment across from the National Stadium, very close to the university. I could move in on Thursday, so I had one full final day, which I spent inspecting every corner of my parents' house as if I were storing up material for future memories. Then I walked through my neighborhood, posing as a caricature of an upstart. I wheeled myself to look down my nose at the streets where I'd grown up, inventing a detachment, contempt, and resentment that, in reality, I didn't feel. I encouraged myself by imagining endless interesting conversations. I didn't yet find the word interesting ridiculous. With all my new friends, our elbows on a table at Las Lanzas or Los Cisnes, even the inhospitable lungs of the university campus struck me, suddenly, as an acceptable version of the locus amoenus I talked to my mom and my sister and asked them to keep my secret. They reacted with a mixture of trepidation and solidarity that for some reason I found disconcerting. When they went to bed, I stayed in the dining room and turned on the TV. There was no need to plan. It was obvious that my father would come home right before the Colo-Colo game started. And that was what happened. We hadn't said a word to each other in days, but we watched the soccer match together and even exchanged a few sentences. Things like, that should be a red card, or he wasn't off sides. I don't remember who won. I think there were no goals, or else there were. And it was us, my dad and me, who were deadlocked. My father raised his eyebrows in lieu of a good night. I didn't go to bed. That night, I wrote my letter to my father. Back then, I hadn't yet read Kafka's letter to his father. I don't think I even knew it existed. I typed my version out on the household computer, since I didn't want my handwriting to ruin the message. I chose Century Gothic font in a very large size, maybe 18 or 20 point in case my father read the letter without his contacts in. He only ever took them out to sleep, but for some reason I imagined him holding the paper up to his naked eyes, his real ones, so to speak. After everyone had left the next morning, I printed out the missive, all 12 pages. It wasn't an aggressive letter. It was melodramatic and tender, though I'd done my best to avoid tenderness. I wrote, maybe, as if I were the adult and I had to explain that leaving home was the only way to keep from hating him and from hating myself. I put it in an envelope, erased the file from the hard drive and started packing my books into trash bags. I caught myself counting the books. Ninety-two. A friend came over with a borrowed truck, though a small car would have sufficed to transport my 92 books and a few clothes. Everything I have to say is in the letter, I told my father with something like literary pride, when we saw each other again the next Friday. I didn't read it. You didn't read it? I'll read it next time I feel like crying, except I never feel like crying. All I wanted to know was what he had thought or felt when he'd read the letter. It had never occurred to me that he wouldn't read it. We were at his office in a minuscule meeting room, as if we were laying out the strategic plan for a startup or something. It was unclear what we had to talk about. Or maybe it was clear, but there was just too much. My dad strung together a very generous speech that sounded as though it had come from a self-help book for fathers and sons. I focused on the authority in his severe but deliberately softened voice. I noticed, as I often did, the burst blood vessels in his eyes, especially the left one. They were like a river with tiny tributaries that seemed to to indicate a kind of suffering whose origins and terminus I couldn't presume to know. It was my father's suffering, but it was also mine. The suffering of meeting my father's eyes and realizing that I didn't know him, that I had lived my whole life with someone I did not know and never would. So do we understand each other? I hadn't heard what he'd said, or I'd heard only the presumed music of his voice. I wasn't listening, I said. What? I got distracted. He came out with a few more words, badly faking a remnant of patience. I started to shout at him. I don't know what I shouted, but he just stared at me and faced like a politician. Or a dead man. Let's not overdo it, he interrupted me. You are overreacting. You always do this. You left. It's done. In the United States, kids leave home much earlier. You'd be considered a late bloomer there. And I'm happy because now I have another room in the house. I'm going to put a big TV in there so I can stay up until 5 in the morning watching movies. I got to Schuster's class late again. I didn't feel like going, but I thought maybe I would run into you. You weren't there. Hardly anyone was, because the class was being taught by the TA, who didn't smoke a single cigarette in the whole session. It was a different kind of class and really a very good one, full of ideas that seemed new. I remember we read some fragments of the cardboard house house by Martín Adán, and a poem by Luis Omar Cáceres, the first lines of which were immediately seared into my memory as if I'd known them forever. Now that the road is dead, and our convertible reflection licks its ghost with a damp tongue. Maybe I walked a few blocks to the rhythm of that poem skipping methodology again and heading straight to Plaza Ñuñoa. I wanted to talk to Miguel, although when I got to the mat toy, I realized that what I really wanted was to talk to you. I asked Miguel if you'd been by the bookstore, and he said no. I gave him a bare-bones summary of my news. He listened attentively, then told me, you're going to be okay. He asked for details, lots of details. He asked if I needed anything, money, anything else. What I need is work, I told him. Well, I can't give you a job, he said. I almost don't have one myself. We're going to shut down. It's pretty much definite. When? In a couple of months, if we are lucky. We'll try to hold out until Christmas, but it'll be tough. Shit, that's awful. So we can't hire you. Right, of course. The fantasy of working at the Mad Toy had been a magical fix-all for me. But at that moment I wasn't thinking about my imminent poverty. Instead, I was saddened by the thought of that place emptied out surely taken over by some café or stupid hair salon. On a shelf I found The Fence of the Idol, the only book Luisa Omar has ever published, and I read every poem in it multiple times. Every once in a while Miguel said something and I answered him, and at times it was like the friendly, intermittent dialogue between two strangers sitting together by chance in a doctor's waiting room. Or are awake? But when I was about to leave, he handed me a sheet of paper, on which he'd written down the phone numbers of ten people who might be able to give me a job of some kind. As a Latin tutor, a gopher, a house sitter, an assistant to an assistant editor. I'm going to let my hair grow out in solidarity with you," he told me as we hugged goodbye. I bought some dobladitas and four slices of cheese, and walked toward my new home thinking about the empty bookstore, but I was also imagining another version of myself walking down some unknown New York Avenue with short hair and a dazed expression. I imagined myself as a young tree, a young and newly pruned tree that wants to stretch out and reach the sun's rays so that it can grow some more. That's what I was thinking about when I noticed that you were there, almost stepping on my heels with your dog. We've been following you for several blocks, chasing you. I didn't believe you, but then I had the feeling that, yes, you had been close to me for a while. How come? I wanted you to meet Flash. Flash was a small black mat with very damp eyes, a little sausage who moved pompously seemingly at a remove from the world at first she seemed to be limping but then i thought it was more that she embellished her steps with coy little hops you talked to me about flash the book by virginia Woolf that your dog was named for and you gave me a copy of the subterranean's a jack kerouac novella that i'd never heard of and that i read soon after and still reread every two or three years eager to experience Once again, the warm earthquake of that ending, one of the best I've ever read. We reached my building and sat down on the steps. I made cheese sandwiches, and the dog ate one too. Everything had changed radically in only one week, and I tried to explain it all to you. But to do that, I had to tell you my whole life story, which was not overflowing with events. Though maybe just then, I thought it was. I told you everything, or almost everything. I talked for some two hours, and it was almost dark when I ran out of words and waited for yours, which didn't come. Let's go inside. It's a little cold, was all you said. The owner of the house was with some tourists, Canadians, I think, who were going to rent the other bedrooms. She and her daughters would sleep in the living room, sleeping bags. She offered us some wine, but we went to my room instead. You stretch out on the mattress casually, as if you lived there. Flash lay at your feet and not at her leash so that you would take it off. I tried to straighten up the room a little. I hadn't had time to get a shelf for the books, and they were still in garbage bags, as were my clothes. The light from a distant street lamp shone dimly through the window. I watched you talk, barely moving your lips. You talked about your dead mother and the movies that she and your dad used to watch and that you now watch it with him. Gabriela loved this part, your dad would interject, with an enthusiasm that was both moving and painful for you. And then you talked about insomnia and the medications you took for insomnia, And a novel about insomnia that you wanted to write. And about a time you got food poisoning from shellfish in Peyuwe. And about your favorite songs, trees and birds. And a strange theory about how to make the perfect salad. And four or five people you hated. High school classmates, I think, and an ex-boyfriend. I remember thinking that those people didn't deserve your hatred or anyone else's. But I didn't say so. I also remember feeling a sudden and intense happiness that you didn't hate me. At one point, out of nowhere, you burst out crying and I tried to console you. It's just your dad makes me so mad, you said. That's why you're crying? Because of my dad? I asked. I don't know. I'm not crying because of that. I'm not sad, you said. I never cry over anything in particular. I'm just in the habit of crying. I'm in favor of tears. Me, too. I'm lying. I cry because I'm posing. All the time. I'm not like this. I like how you are. Even though I don't know what you're like. And I'm posing, too, all the time. With you and everyone else. Yeah. Then came a long silence, an important and pleasant one. Like someone memorizing a shopping list, I thought back over the details of our conversation so I wouldn't forget a thing. Do you think your dad is ever going to read the letter? You asked me then. I had just told you about the letter, and yet I felt as though that part of the conversation had been left definitively behind. It was hard for me to return to that headspace. I also felt as though the encounter with my dad was far in the past, but I tried to answer honestly. I thought he had actually read the letter, but lied and said he hadn't. Yeah, he read it, I'm sure of that, you said. Flash was sprawled out and snoring. You went to the bathroom and when you came back, you flopped onto the bed again. Ten seconds later, as if you just remembered something urgent, you got up, turned on the light and started to take my books out of the box one by one. Almost without looking at them, you piled them up, like towers. This is your New York, you told me then. Look, these are the buildings in Manhattan, the skyscrapers. We stacked the books into slab, slapdash replicas of the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, and the Twin Towers, which were still standing then. We hadn't kissed yet, hadn't slept together yet, and we didn't know anything with any certainty about the future, Perhaps I intuited or fantasized that we would spend a long time together, several years, maybe our whole lives. But I didn't suspect that those years would be fun, intense, and bitter. and would be followed by decades during which we knew nothing of each other. Until the moment came when it would seem possible, conceivable to tell a story. Any story. This story. And erase you from it. That night you were utterly unerasable, and no thought about the future really mattered to us, while we used my books as bricks to imitate those vast, imposing, cold, distant, absurd, beautiful buildings. Mm
0: That was Alejandro Zambra reading his story, Skyscrapers, which was translated from the Spanish by Megan McDowell. He's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2014. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Andrea Alexis reads Waiting for Death in a Hotel by Italo Calvino translated from the Italian by Martin McLaughlin. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.